So we are um, um, third week here in Malachi. So, and if Jake did the math right, it's four weeks per chapter is what we got to do. So uh, I've got a lot to get through tonight. Uh, tonight's kind of I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I, I may be too ambitious. So uh, I'm hoping we get through everything I've got planned for tonight. Um, if we do, then that's good. I think we're on a good track to finish this thing out on time. So, uh, but we'll just kind of see how it goes here tonight. Last week uh, we went through, um, you know, again uh, Malachi split up into seven questions, and last week we talked about the first question, which was, uh, you know, the people, and again. Uh, this is kind of a back and forth between God and His people. And, you know, it's these questions are not... You know, uh, questions are good, okay? You know, I like questions. I teach by using questions. I, 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 uh, when I went to Bible college, I mean, the professors hated me because I asked questions. Uh, uh, I didn't take anything that they said for gospel. I mean, I wanted to know why, 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 prove it. Where do I find that information at? You know, if they gave me something that wasn't in the Bible, I needed to see citation, you know. And uh, so anyway, I kind of drove them nuts a little bit. I like questions, but these questions in Malachi, they aren't questions because people are desiring truth. They're not sincere. They're not looking for, um, you know, uh, furthering their relationship with God or their understanding of God. They're asking questions as a way of avoiding blame. Okay, and I, I want us to make sure that we see that. And so, you know, to start off here, their first question is, well, God, how have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? And we went through that, but I'm bringing it back up again because at the heart of this, uh, of all their other problems is that problem, right? So that first question, you know, um, well, we'll get back to that. That first question, uh, you know, God loves them. They don't see that. And we talked a bit about this. You know, there's, there's this, sometimes there's a push in churches, you know, especially, and I've been there, guys. I, 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 you know, I've been right there. But, you know, you look out the church and you say, well, what are our problems? And so maybe you start listing some of those problems. It's like, well, people aren't showing up. People aren't giving. People aren't being evangelistic. People need to, re- whatever it is, okay? And you can look at that and you say, okay, so obviously I need to speak on showing up to the assembly, right? Like that'd be a good place to start. And of course, it is a good place to start because if you can't get people to show up, you can't deal with the other stuff, right? And so that's kind of, you know, we're, we're talking about the kitty end of the pool here, right? I mean, let's get that right before we get into deeper water. And so, you know, maybe, maybe you're going to address people showing up. And so, and, and I've been there, I've done this, you know, I, I remember being 18, 19 years old, being an evangelist in a church and not really knowing what I was doing, but knowing we're going to fix this attendance problem. And I assumed that the problem was the ignorance of the crowd, of the people. I thought, well, maybe they don't know any better. And if they don't know any better, that's my fault because I haven't taught it. And so I thought maybe we'll have a sermon on church attendance and what it means to be faithful to the assembly. I'll break down what the assembly is, what it means to not be doing what you're supposed to be doing. That, that, that's considered sin. And, you know, broke all this down. You know, made it real clear when I got done preaching the sermon, there was no two ways about it. Everybody sitting there that heard what I said that saw the scriptures, they knew at the end of that sermon, I'm supposed to be in attendance when the, when the assembly comes together. And I thought, well, that wasn't so bad. Shouldn't be a problem anymore. <laughs> you all laugh because you're smarter than I was, right? So, you know, what do you think happened? Yeah, nothing changed, guys. Nothing changed. And here I thought, you know, I'm 19 years old. And I figured it out. You know, all these preachers been doing it for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years and they're complaining. And I'm like, I'm 19 and I've got it figured out. What's so hard about this? Well, the next week I was humbled, guys, because less people showed up. 
okay? Less people showed up. And, and then I thought, well, I'm not smart enough to deal with more than one problem at a time. So I literally had a sermon, and I remember it was on, it was on the, the Beatitudes there in Matthew 5, and I folded it back up, put it in the back of my Bible, went to the front and pulled out the one from the week before. And I said, all right, we apparently missed it. <laughs> so, you know, I pulled it back out. We preached it again, you know, and I really, and I really thought, they, they just haven't, haven't seen it yet. So if I teach on this, they'll get it, and then we won't have problems with the, the assembly anymore. And I got, that week I got phone calls, okay? And you preachers know what I'm talking about. People are mad, they're upset. You know, I'm not coming back if this is all we're going to hear and all this sort of stuff. And anyway, it became real evident to me at that point that it, we can know what the right thing is to do and still choose not to do it. Right, And so, like I said, there's a tendency to look at the problems and say, well, let's just preach on the problems. And, and there's times you have to do that. But if people don't want to be there, it doesn't matter if they know they're supposed to be there. They won't show up. Right? And so the, the, the source of the problem is they don't love God enough to show up. That's the issue. And so with Malachi, the first problem is the root of all of it. They, they, they don't love God and they don't see where God loves them. Okay, and, and it, it's important to see both of that because we love because he first loved us, right? So if you don't see that, then your response won't be the appropriate response to that. And so anyway, I'm, I'm just bringing that up because, uh, you know, I, I don't want you to forget what we go over one week going into the next week. It, it, you know, it all builds, builds on one another. So <clears throat> let's go to Malachi chapter 1. In verse 6, we're going to look at the second question here tonight. And we'll also, if, I'm, if I plan this well, we'll get into the third question as well. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Well, then if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Okay, and so... I already said this, first question, what way have you loved us? God loves them, they don't see it, everything else kind of stems from this. What, what Malachi is now presenting, okay, in the second question, is he brings up the fact that there is no relationship between these people and God, right? He says, well, you call me father and you call me master, but, you know, there's a disconnect between what you're saying and how you're acting, right? He says, you know, if you're, you're going to call me father, I'm not seeing it. You're going to call me master? I don't see it either. Okay, and that's what God's saying. And so Malachi's bringing up the fact that they, they don't really have a relationship with God. And, you know, if God is their father, if God is their master, guess what? It's news to God, right? Because he's not, he just doesn't see it. And this reminds me, let's go, flip over to Matthew chapter 7. We talked a lot about relationship in our tabernacle class because, you know, a big point of that is drawing near, which was not something they could do in the Old Testament, but something that we can do for sure today. <clears throat> but, you know, this idea of people that think they have a relationship with God, but they don't. I mean, you don't, you don't hit it more on the nose here than, than you do in Matthew chapter 7. In verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? And I'll declare them, uh, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And, you know, got to be one of the saddest things you can read in the Bible, right? There's no way around it. What was that? Is that me? It's impressive, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. 
just keeping everyone awake. Um, I got, it scared me, I'm distracted. So, uh, Aha, yeah. So, you know, um, yeah, there's, there's no way not to not see it. Like these people expected welcomed arms, right? I mean, come on in, um, you know, enter into the, the rest of, uh, you know, and, and well done, good and faithfully. Like that's what they expected from the Lord. And instead, they, the Lord looks at them and says, I don't even know who you are, right? You, you all need to go. And that just screams, we never had a relationship. Now they think they had a relationship, right? But there is no relationship there. You all ever met someone who tried to throw around some names and, you know, maybe acted like they were something because they're related to somebody who is something? I don't, I, that baffles me, you know, because just because you're related to somebody, one doesn't make you stack up to that person. And when that's good and bad, let me tell you, y'all ever do the Ancestry.com thing? I used to not be interested. I'm kind of interested in that now. I haven't decided if I want to do it. And I'll tell you why. I'm a little scared what I might find, right? Everybody's hoping you're going to get on there, get on Ancestry.com and find out, well, look, my great-great-great-grandfather was, you know, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. And, you know, and then you might find out it was Hitler. You know what I mean? And that changes things, doesn't Like, you don't want to see the bad. But in your, I, there's no doubt about it. We've all got some scary history there in our family tree somewhere, right? And so, but, you know, you go to, you, you see those people and they're like, oh, well, I'm related to so-and-so or I've got a connection to so-and-so. And the truth is, what, they don't have a relationship with those people. You know what I mean? And so they're, they're just trying to impress you with the connection that they have but there is no connection that they have. And that, man, that sounds like the Jewish people here in the book of Malachi. Like what makes, they think they're special because they have this connection to God and God is telling them it's, that, conne- that connection's not there. Something's up, man. Yeah, it's where the mic goes into the thing. If you could find a place to put that where best or something. Here? No, the, here. this better? We can only find out. <laughs> Should I just hold it? <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands. All right, we'll just... We'll, we'll. Kind of like a back pocket that's lower? Yeah, maybe that could work. That's true. Okay, I think we're good. I'm worried I'll drop it now. I'll sit on it and break it and I'll owe you a new one. Okay. We're getting distracted. Okay, back to it. So anyway, the point is the Jewish people think they're special because they, they have this connection to God, right? We've got this covenant. You know, we've, we've got this relationship with God. We've got God's law. We've got the temple. You know, we've got all these things. And, and the truth is they, they don't, you know, the relationship's just not there, okay? And so, you know, I, I, I think back to Galatians 4.9 here. Uh, Paul's dealing with some of the same issue with the church in Galatia. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how is it you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved again? And, you know, people are always asking, well, do you know Jesus? And do you know Jesus? And do you know Jesus? And maybe the right question is, does Jesus know you? Right? That that seems to be more important here. And so, that relationship, man, it goes... Here's the deal, okay? We just talked about problems in the church and why they exist. And sometimes we kind of go hacking at the limbs instead of digging underneath and, and tearing out the root of the problem. What people need to understand, okay, is that if, if this is not personal for you, then this could not be more empty and shallow 
and without substance. And if we do not make this personal with people. Now, again, I, I've said this before. It, this is not about a personal relationship between just you and God. And no, This is about you, God, uh, through Jesus Christ in, in a fellowship of believers. You can't separate all that, but it needs to mean something to you. It still has to be personal. Right? You still need to be personally invested into this. And if it, without that relationship, without, without this being personal, you know, it, it's so empty and meaningless and it won't last. And you've all probably been in places like that where you've walked into a church and it's like all the right things are happening, but it's just hollow. You know, and I, I remember several years ago, I was in a place like that. And it's like I couldn't put my finger on what was... It's, I, you couldn't sit up and say, well, they've got a bunch of stuff going wrong. You know what I mean? That the Lord's Supper was served every Lord's Day. The right plan of salvation was being proclaimed. There wasn't any false doctrine being, being spoken from the pulpit. People were, as a matter of fact, this, this, this con- congregation was, uh, was rare in the fact that like, if you wanted to know how many people, sh- people were there, they would tell you 76. Not about 70 or maybe 80 or sometimes it's 100, you know. I mean, and then if it was 76, like Wednesday night, it might be 74. You know what I mean? Like they were consistently there, you know, and, and which you don't always see that in places, you know. And so like they had a lot of things that were pretty impressive, but it, there was something missing, you know. And it's like this, this love of God, this, this, this making it personal, this something more than just the rigid routine. And, you know, and, and if you're familiar with the letters written to the churches in Revelation, we have a, we have a letter written to a church that's like that, don't we? Right? He, he writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, listen, you all have a lot of good things going on, but what was their problem? The first love, they left it. And because of that, they needed to repent. And, and you know, when you think about that, sometimes we're, we think, well, I don't need to repent if I'm not doing anything wrong. But, yeah, they needed to repent because they weren't doing these things because of a love for God. They weren't personally invested in it, okay? And so that's, you know, people need to understand, you know, when, when they, whatever they are struggling with or struggling to overcome or, or whatever things are getting in their way, okay, a meaningful relationship with Jesus and His church is better than you just having whatever it is you think you want or getting your way or not being in the pain that you think you're in, okay? That this is worth it and it's better. It's better than what you think you're getting. So anyway, here in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, I want us to understand there's two problems in this verse. Um, The first problem, okay, let's read it again. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despised my name, but you say how we despised you. The first problem is this. The Lord's not being treated like a father or a master. Okay? He, does not, he doesn't have the respect of, of, of a father. He doesn't have the obedience of a Lord or, or a master. Okay? And so, so that's, that's a big issue. The second problem is the people don't see it. Right? How do we know that the people don't see that this is, that this, that, that, that relationship isn't there? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're still calling him father and they're calling him master, right? And so that's, let, let, me, let me tell you, you know, here about two years ago, I think it was two years ago, um, I had two different people that I was working with in our congregation. Two, two different people. They were both lost, Okay, so they both, had, they both had that problem, right? They both needed Jesus, okay? Um, now, one of these individuals 
I, I love to tell his story because um, he was so much fun. He came, you know, and, and I, I sat down with him. I said, hey, man, you know, he was a younger guy. And I said, look, I'd love to sit down and get one-on-one with you and kind of explain some things. Anyway, what he said to me, was, he said, Ethan, look, I appreciate it, but I, I just need everyone to back off for a minute. He's like, I've got, you know, he was, he was seeing a girl that was, that was attending there at Glencoe, and, you know, her parents were telling him, you need to come to church and get baptized, and he had, uh, I think his parents were telling him something different, and then he had a boss where he worked that was, uh, was a denominational guy. They'd actually be like, okay, why don't you come into my office for an hour? I'm going to have a Bible study with you and explain to you why you shouldn't be baptized. Okay, and so everybody's telling him one thing or another thing, and it was all about baptism. And I didn't mention baptism to him. I just said, I'd like to sit down and study, maybe answer some questions you have. And he said, I need to see what the Bible says for itself before anybody else tells me anything else. He said, I'm tired of people telling me what to do. I need to see it. And I said, okay, fair enough. You know, when you're ready, (laughs) you know, I can help you, you know, find some scriptures so you can see it for yourself. But he really just wanted some space. And so he kept coming. But I'm telling you what, man, he was excited. He was reading. And, you know, this poor kid didn't know any better. So he starts reading the Bible like you would any other book, you know. It's probably not a bad way to do it. He started in Genesis, okay? And he's just reading, you know? And, he, and finally, one day, he comes up to me. He says, uh, he says, hey, can we meet up? I, got, I just got all these questions. I need some answers. I'm confused. And so we, we, we sit down, have dinner together and stuff. And, and, and he pulls out this notebook. And he's like quoting to me these big ch- chunks of Scripture out of Genesis. Like word for, I mean, he really knows it, you know. He's got all these questions. And then finally he's like, Ethan, man, he's like, I'm halfway through Exodus now. I'm looking to get into Leviticus. He's like, I've been doing the study. I've been taking notes. He's like, I haven't heard anything about baptism yet. <laughs> you know, and so I was like, well, you're, you've got a while, you know. So, and, so anyway, we got, him, we got him on track there. And, you know, he ends up becoming a Christian, you know. But like that was one individual, right? And at the same time I'm working with him, I got another guy that's coming in and completely different attitude. Um, he is, he knows, he's got all the, he, he says all the right things, you know. He speaks fluent Christianese, okay? And so, you know, he's, he's got Christian shirts on, wears a Christian hat, loves Christian music, you know, says all those things. Well, it becomes real apparent when I get to get to talk to him. He's never opened a Bible before. I mean, he just doesn't, know, I mean, really, really ignorant with this. And ignorance, okay, right? It just means you don't know. But it's a problem when you aren't willing to admit that you're, you don't know. And so this guy... His problem was he, he's, he's very confident that he's a Christian. And, you know, as we try to talk about, you know, anything that's not his story, uh, you know, he's, he's defensive and he's getting argumentative about. And, you know, and this guy goes out and, you know, after we sit down and, and try to walk through some scripture, I find out that he's, he's trying to, well, he's running my name down around the congregation and he's going to some people and, you know, he's trying to throw his money around and preachers come and go, guys. But, you know, I don't think you guys want to do without my, uh, my, my contribution here and all this sort of, I mean, one of those kind of things. And so, anyway, my point is, same, same time, two individuals, they're both lost. They're both outside of Jesus. Okay, one of those two individuals, there's some hope, right? And, and, and that one became a Christian. What made the difference? He knew he was lost, and the other one wouldn't see it, right? You know, oh, I've got a relationship with God. Based on what? Based on what? You know, and so he'd been, he'd been churched, 
right? And so he, he you know, he, he felt very comfortable, well, comfortable around church people and felt like a very religious guy, but he had disconnected everything to do with God and the church and Jesus from what you'd read about in the Scripture. And so, man, that, that made it really, really difficult. And so the point is, these people in Malachi's day, they fooled themselves into believing that they had a relationship with God that's working. And, and you know, you can't fix that until you're able to see that it's not working. And today, it's, it's no different. People convince themselves that they're just fine. Sometimes the church helps them convince themselves that they're just fine. And, you know, that it, and, and they've got this security blanket, and they think everything's fine. They've never obeyed the gospel. But why would they when they think they're fine? Right? And so, you know, you never do what's necessary when you don't realize it's necessary. And so, you know, the old, the old thing is, right, you got to get people lost before you can get them saved. Well, it's, it's no different here. You know, there's a problem. And until they recognize we don't have a working relationship, the people in Malachi's day aren't going to try to do anything to fix it. And so, anyway, he brings up where we at. Let's go back to Malachi chapter 1 here. Um, he brings up the fact that they... The evidence that their relationship with him isn't there is seen in these two things, honor and respect. And, you know, honor and respect. Well, how are those things demonstrated? Okay, submission, action, huh? obedience, yeah. You know, there's a problem here where there's a disconnect between what they do and what they say. And if you can't see that we're in the middle of the same problem in the church today, you're not paying enough attention. You know, we, 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 we've got this, you know, how many people say Jesus is the Lord of their life, okay? Um, but then sell him out, you know, for a ball game on Wednesday. You know, Jesus is the Lord, you know, as for me and my family, right, we serve the Lord unless my kids got peewee football Sunday morning. Right? Well, who, who's the Lord on Sunday morning? You know, the whole thing is there, there's, you know, the Christian life is, is, is full of conflict, guys. And the flesh and the spirits at war with one another, and they're, they're, you're constantly under, under this conflict of, 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 of options, right? I mean, to choose, to say yes to God is to say no to something else. And, and you know, and if you've not experienced that in your life, you, you must not be living very much because there, there's no chance that you're going to become a Christian and, and, and being faithful to the Lord and doing all the things that you're supposed to do is just going to happen without having to change anything about you, right? And so change is necessary and, and the conflict, it's going to be abrasive, but there's, there's going to be times where you're going to have to pick God over something else, okay? And that, that, that's, that's the nature of this. And we act like the big battle over heaven and hell is some futuristic kind of Armageddon kind of a thing. But listen, that battle is being fought in your life every single day by the little decisions. We are the little decisions that we make, right? Your life's made up of what? Maybe, maybe five or six big decisions, but you're, you know, every, the things you do every day, that's what constitutes who you are. And if the Lord can't win in those little things, the Lord's not winning, you know, and, and we need to see that. We need to quit acting like, like, oh yeah, Jesus is the Lord of my life. I'm going to put Jesus first. But then we don't put Jesus first. Now, you know, 
here's how it works. You know, when I was a kid, we'd play a game called Follow the Leader, okay? And you all ever played it? Okay, so you know how it works, right? If someone is the leader, and then what the leader does, you're supposed to do, okay? So we understand. Now, what happens if the leader does something and you don't do it in that game? You lose, okay? Now, how come when Jesus is supposed to be the leader and we don't do the things that Jesus tells us to do, we still think we're winning? You, you see the disconnect? You all ever play Simon Says? Okay, it's another very complicated kids game. And it, it works like this. If I'm Simon, okay, and I say Simon Says, raise your right hand. Your job is to, Jake wins, everybody loses. <laughs> your job is to raise your right hand, right? And of course you can trick people up because you can say, Simon says, raise your right hand, raise your left hand. And then Simon didn't say. Okay, but, but anyway, there's... there's <laughs> I didn't do it. Oh, yeah, he didn't do it. He almost did though. Uh, listen, Jesus says, right? And then we're supposed to do it. Jesus doesn't say, that's fine, don't do it. Okay, but when Jesus says... We're supposed to do something. We're supposed to do it. That's how, that's how it works. Okay? And then we're going to sit here and say, well, I didn't do it, but I'm still faithful. You see the disconnect, right, between what we say and what we do. And it's the same thing here, right? And so honor and respect, it's, it's, it's a disconnect between what they say and what they do. They're not putting God first. They're disobeying Him. And by doing that, they're disrespecting Him. Yet they're still addressing Him as Father, as Master, Lord of my life. I'm going to put God first in my life. You know, they're still saying the right things. They're just not doing the right things. So I got some scripture up here um, about some scriptures to just kind of help us solidify this idea about making the connection between what we do and what we say. And so we'll just kind of read through these. We won't, won't dwell on them too long. Titus chapter 1. They should all be in your notes. Titus chapter 1 verse 6. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Right? So there again, we see a disconnect between what they say and what they're doing. Okay? Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Man, that's rough. Right? Because who is this crowd? It's a crowd we'd see on a Sunday morning. Right? It's a crowd of people that, that would call themselves Christians. Right? They profess to know God. They, they, they talk like they have a relationship with God. But where's the evidence? Yeah, there isn't any. Right? They don't have the actions to back it up. Okay? John chapter 14, 15. I love this example. If you love me, Jesus says you'll keep my commands. Right? Okay, well, you know, the other side of that is also true. If we're not keeping these commands, what does that say about our relationship with him? We don't love him, right? You know, <clears throat> and so, uh, for, this one's a little harder to read if you're in the back. First John uh, 2, 3 through 6. By this we know that we have come to know him. Okay, now, now think about that. By this we know that we've come to know him. By this we can tell that there's a relationship between us and God. What? If we keep his commandments. The one who says, well, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth's not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Right? Man, it's real hard. I mean, it's real hard to get around this stuff. Uh, you know, I, I don't see any way. That, there's no loophole here, right? There's no, well, that's what it's saying. But, that, you know, again, we disconnect it from, you know, and it, it just doesn't work that way. So, you, you don't, don't tell me you fear God if you're not going to obey God. 
Right? Don't tell me he's the, Jesus is the Lord of your life if you keep choosing other things over him. Then he's not the Lord of your life, right? And so that's, that's the way this goes. Now, let's move on here. Um, he says, oh, priests who despise my name. Let's go back there. Just, I, well, where's it at? There he goes. Yeah, here at the end here. He says, uh, if I'm master, where's my respects as Lord of hosts? Oh, priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised you? Okay, back where we go here. Um, we'll, we'll come back. We'll circle around. Okay, back to Genesis chapter 2 for a second. Here's what goes on. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you'll surely die. Now, here's the deal. In the garden, we've got this tree, and we've, we've you know, basically got one, one, one commandment here. I mean, there's some other things there to do, but one big rule, don't eat of this tree. And, you know, um, Adam and Eve, you know, they, they, here's the thing. I don't know, we don't, we don't have a timeline on this, you know. I mean, it kind of reads like God says, don't eat it, and the next day they show up and start chowing down, okay? But we don't know, well, you know, we don't, we're not giving it, I mean, it could have been a couple weeks, could have been months, could have been years. I don't know what kind of timeline goes on between here's the command and here's them breaking it. But, you know, we go back to, to, to John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. I, when I was younger, I used to read this and think, boy, why didn't God just take the, the tree out of the garden, Right? I mean, wouldn't that have saved us a lot of trouble, a lot of pain, and, uh, you know, a lot of turmoil? And, you know, it's like, man, he put that thing in there and then told them not to eat of it. And, you know, the thing is, and, and I've, I've realized this more, you know, with kids, is, you know, if I ask my kids to do something or not to do something, like, you know, I got to trust them. You know, and, and so they're at, they're, you know, when they're little, you, you don't trust them. You just kind of protect them from those things you know but as they get older there's this there's this level of trust and so when I say okay you need to not do this or you need to do this and you know I can either hover over them and watch that it gets done or I can sit back and kind of trust that they're going to do it and then and then there comes a point where I where that gets proven right and 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 how do you know whether they trust you or love you or whether they 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 don't trust you and, and don't love you in that moment if they listen to what you say or they don't listen to what you say, right? God has this rule, and by giving them a rule, there's a, there's a way to measure and, 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 and determine that Adam and Eve have love for God or not. And so there's this period of time, and we don't know how long it is. Maybe it's a day, an hour, maybe it's a year. But where Adam and Eve, you know, are in the garden, and they're, they're, and they're respecting the rule. And so if you love me, you'll, you'll obey my commandments. And so, and then one day that changes and the message is you, you didn't love God more than whatever it is you thought you were going to get out of this, right? And so it's a pretty, pretty serious message. And so, so here, here's the command and I want you to understand the command was understood. I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't because they were sitting around having a theological debate and that they concluded, well, I don't think God really meant what he said. Right? That didn't happen. It wasn't confusion. It wasn't ignorance. And then after they sinned and they were confronted, they never argued and said, well, God, your command was too difficult to understand or it was too hard to obey. No, God, it was unfair to give us that kind. I mean, that, that didn't happen. Now, we act that way about sin today, 
we act like, well, it's, you know, it's not our, it's not our fault. It's just the way that we are. It's, well, it's just too hard to do the right thing. And, you know, it, you know, and we, we, we like to pass the blame around quite a bit, but in the garden, we don't see that right now. We see him passing some blame, but we never, we never see it. The blame being the command was too difficult to understand or too difficult to obey. And so here's the thing. What it boils down to is they knew what God wanted. And at some point they chose to do something different. And, and the question might be, well, why? Well, you know, in Genesis 3, I think we get a little bit of insight into this. Serpent said to the woman, you, you'll surely not die. God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what, you know, yeah, they'll be like God in the fact that they'll know good and evil. But maybe what Eve thought was, you know, maybe God's holding out on me. Right? Maybe God, maybe this rule that God gave me is keeping me from something that, that I think would be good for me. Right? Maybe, maybe this is some. Maybe I know better than God. You know, and I really think at the at, at the the heart of the matter is, well, you know, God isn't actually giving me the best. You know, that God is withholding His best from me, and that's that's what's kind of caught up into this tree. And I I do believe that a lot of sin comes back down to that attitude. Why why is it that I would sit back and decide to do something different than what God tells me to do? If 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 not for the fact that I think I know better than God what's best for me in the moment. Right? And so I, I, I do think we struggle with that. And so in the day of Malachi, it's the same thing. You know, they're treating God like he's holding back on them. We're going to see that in their offerings and their sacrifices. They're literally giving God the garbage and the leftovers. And we're, we're, we might hit that tonight. Um, but, but, you know, at some point in this, you know, it's, it's got to be that they think that by following God's commands, it's going to put them out. That God's not really offering them uh, his very best. And, you know, and, and it's the same reason why even today... You know, well, here's the, you know, the devil wants us to believe that God's holding out on us, right? God doesn't really love you. God's not really offering you his best. And as a result, people try to live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. We try to have our cake and eat it too. You know, we want to have our, our salvation and our sin too, right? And so we kind of, you know, but this is, this is why you've got people in the church that'll decide, well, you know what, I'm going to have, have an inappropriate relationship with this person that I'm not supposed to have, but I think, I think this would bring me bring me joy and love and happiness and and God's just hold, you know by by obeying God he's he's withholding this from me right and so I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway it's it's the reason that people like I said will will live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world they think the church is too restrictive that God is keeping them from having what they want now what they don't realize is that God God has always offered us his very best and that if we could see it for what it is we'd recognize that God's boundaries that he puts on us is what allows us to remain free and, and in peace and in joy and, and these are truly the things that are best for us um, but you know not everybody shares that same mentality and so anyway this is the deal when, when, when you think about it this way Malachi doesn't accuse the priests of not loving God he goes a step further and says that they despise God now, what group are we talking about here? We're talking about religious leaders of God's people. These aren't the used to wuzzers, okay? Uh, the, these aren't the backslidden. These aren't the, you know, this is, these aren't the people we'd consider to be hate pagans or heathens or what. I mean, these are the people that should be the kind of the cream of the crop, right? I mean, these are the religious leaders of his day and Malachi comes right out of the gate 
just six verses into this and says, you all despise God. Despise Him. You think you have a relationship with Him. You call Him Father and Master, but the reality is you despise Him. That's tough, man. I mean, that's, that's a lot to think about. You know, what does it mean to despise? To hate? Dishonor, disrespect, to loathe, right? You ever... Um, you know couple you know maybe in a marriage is having a rough go at it you know and so though you sit down try to talk to them or whatever but you you can see you know you know when it can work out and you know when they've already given up okay unfortunately you know and I've seen this too you know it's like well if you can sit down with them and as you try to talk about what's going on you, you know if you see one of them roll their eyes okay now I know it's just rolling their eyes my, my wife says I roll my eyes at her all the time I tell them, I'm just looking up and you know I'm just taller than you. It just comes off that way. No, but, but you know, that, that eye roll, that's resentment, right? That's what that is. That's resentment. That's, that's, that's this, you know, being, you know, despising that person. And it's like once that sets in, um, man, it's hard to get something to work out after. Because you've basically decided you're done, you know, that, that it's, it's already over. You know, and, uh, and like I said, you can kind of see that sometimes in, in a couple. And you pray for the best. You hope it works out. But, I mean, when you already have it on, on in the back of your mind that this is going to end and I've got a way out. Um, and that's why marriage is supposed to be the way it is, right? I mean, you know, you enter into a covenant for, for life and then this hangs over your head. And it's like, well, you know, honey, for better or for worse, this may be the worst, but I'm not going anywhere. You know, we, we've got to work it out. And it forces you to go through the difficult things. But, you know, sometimes, like I said, that resentment sets in and people already decided they're done. And that's hard. And so, but that's, that's kind of what's going on here with these priests. You know, it's like, oh, you know, if you mention God's name in front of them, they'd roll their eyes. You know, I mean, the resentment set in. They despise him. And it's, uh, what kind of relationship is that? It's a relationship where one side of the party's already given up, right? They've already given up. And so, you know, it's hard to make that work, you know. Reminds me of um, Matthew chapter 6. We see the same idea here. Um, and uh, and I, again, this is, this is something that I think is so relevant to us uh, because, because this isn't a problem in the church. This is a problem that every Christian is going to have to face and deal with, okay? This is life. Jesus brings us up that no one can serve two masters. Actually, in the same context, he brings up the, the principle between the treasure and the heart, you know, that, uh, that the heart follows the treasure. Wherever your treasure is there too, your heart will be. Big concept, guys, if you think about that, because a lot of times I think we, we think of it differently. We think wherever our uh, heart is, our treasure will follow. But it's the other, the heart follows the treasure. And so, you know, well, what's a treasure? What's, what's valuable to you? Right? It's what's important to you. And whatever's important to you, that's where your heart's at. Okay? And so you can't sit here and say your heart's with the Lord if the Lord's not important to you. You see? And so, and, and, and the answer to that problem is not, well, I'll just give my heart to Jesus. That doesn't work. You have to make Jesus important. Right? You have to decide this is important. Heaven and hell is important. My Christian life is important. My Christian example is important. My accountability to one another is important. You make that important and your heart will go there. Right, that's the principle. And that, but then he brings this up in, in like the same breath. He says, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. Or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. And I think it's really, like I think sometimes we read this and all we hear is, you can't serve 
two masters. You can't serve God and wealth. And like we kind of forget the rest of this. He does not say you will serve one and you won't serve the other. And that's usually how we teach this. Can't serve two masters because you'll divide, you'll be divided and a house divided against itself can't stand and you know, you'll only really serve one, you won't really serve the other. That's not what he's saying. He says, if you try to serve two masters, what relationship will you end up having with one of them? Hate and the other one you'll love. That's, that's what he says is the danger. So let's think about this for a second. Okay, let's kind of flesh this out a little bit. He even brings up you'll despise the one. Okay, and so... Here's the thing, you know, you, you've got, we've already talked about the conflict, and so let, let's, just, let's just take a very practical example, okay? You know, I've, I've got young kids, they're uh, getting ready to start a basketball league, okay? You know, it's, it's, it's not much of a basketball league. I think they've got two practices and like three games lined up, and so, and these kids have never touched a basketball before in their life. You Indiana folks would be ashamed of what's going on over here in Kentucky with the basketball program, let me tell you. Yeah, so, uh, but anyway, my boys are going to play, play, play some basketball. And so we've already talked about with them, okay, here's the deal, guys. You know, if things go on, we have our assembly midweek on a Wednesday night. And I told the boys, you know, and one of them, my oldest boy was actually scared. He's like, I don't know that I wanted to play basketball. What if they make me, what if they say I'm going to have to play when I'm supposed to be at church? He says, I don't want to do that. And I said, we just, we just won't play. We'll go to church that night. It'll be all right, bud. You know, it's okay. You know, he says, what if they want to have a game on a Sunday? I'm like, well, you know where we'll be. And they'll be fine without you. You know, it'll be all right. So anyway, he's like, okay, well, let's do this, you know. But, you know, but here, here's the dilemma. There's a lot of people that want to be at the ball game. Now, he wants to be at the church meeting. But there's a lot of people that want to be at the ball game, okay? And so they're conflicted. It's like, I really enjoy hunting on a Sunday or golfing, being out on the golf course on a Sunday. Or I really, you know, my kids got, you know, a, a peewee ball game going on. And, you know, it's really important and all that. You know, I get it, you know. But here's the conflict is when you start wanting to do that, but there's this requirement from you from the Lord to be in the assembly and around the Lord's table on the first day of the week. What do you, you know, you're, what are your options here? Well, you're either going to begrudgingly show up on Sunday morning, Okay. And the whole time you're sitting there, what are you thinking about? Oh, I should be out playing football, and I wonder if they're winning or losing or how that's going. It's probably going to affect me, and I'm probably going to have to sit the bench next week. And Right? That's resentment setting in, guys. Okay? Or you're going to skip it altogether, and you're going to go to the game, because that's where your heart's really at. You've decided that that's more important. And so here's two things you're trying to serve, and maybe you can keep serving God the best you can for a while, but if, if the Lord's not important... Or, or more important than the other thing, the relationship between these two gods you're trying to serve, you will love one and hate the other. And the one you hate is the one that you feel is intruding on the one you love. Do you understand that? The one you hate is the one that you think is intruding on the one you love. If you're sitting here thinking, boy, I'd rather be out in that golf course right now and I can't believe I'm stuck in here listening to Ethan and Bible study and I read, this is not the one you love. Now, what's the solution to that? I mean, force yourself to be here? No, you've you got to decide what, you've got to re rearrange your priorities and, and decide what's important, right? I mean, being here doesn't fix it. It's, it's changing what's important to you. That's, it's a heart condition. You need to change that, right? This needs to be the most important thing. Uh, but like I said, if it's not, this will feel like a burden to you. Now, now, we've all been there and we've all seen it, right? 
People, people are excited about the Lord and then they get busy. Um, you know, they, they don't know how to set healthy spiritual boundaries and so they're saying yes to everything. They've got 10,000 things going on with their family, with their kids, with their neighbors, with everything else. And all of a sudden we start seeing less and less and less of them. And it's not because one day they just decided I don't care about Jesus. It's just that they got, they got crowded, man. And this became less and less important. And this is the thing that became a burden on everything else. Right? Okay, but it's a, heart, it's a heart condition. It's a heart issue. Okay, and so here's these priests, okay, despising his name, hate, loathe, detest. And you wonder how you get there. People get there all the time. But here's my question. You know, you'll love one or you'll despise the other, right? That's, that's what he says. Well, let me ask you this. Is there some place in the middle? What about this? Yeah, now Jesus says you're either hot or you're cold, but the lukewarm he spits out, right? See, you know, indifference is what's in the middle of these two things. You know, and what does that look like? I just don't care. Yeah, I just don't care anymore. Right? And so, you know, you, you can love one, you can hate the other, or you can just not care either way. And I'm telling you what, there's a lot of that in the church. Okay, you know, truth is, you know, we act like the opposite of love is hatred, okay, and it's not. Um, love and hate kind of go together, okay? If I love something, I hate the things that are going to harm it. You know, I love my family, but if, if someone came into my house at night, I'm going to assume that's a threat. I, we're not messing around with that. You see what I mean? So I hate something that's going to threaten the things that I love. God hates the things that threaten what he loves too. See, love and hate's kind of two sides of the same coin, okay? Um, the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. Okay, and think about that. What's, you know, it, it's neglect, not caring, not being there, right? That's the opposite of love. And, and maybe you felt that before. Maybe you've been there before, but you know what I'm talking about. Hatred is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. And, and that's a dangerous place to go in the church and with our relationship with God. Okay? And so, something to think about here. You know, uh, like I said, a lot of that in the church. Anyway, let's get back to this. They're, they're addressing the, uh, we're addressing the priesthood. Okay? And uh, we mentioned this in our introduction to this book that we're, we're dealing with uh, the spiritual leaders. Um, and the point is, you know, that uh, this, this all points at the priests and it goes downhill from there. And so, you know, the, the idea is people do follow the leadership. That's the way it's set up. You know, leaders lead and people follow. And if, if you know, if you think you're a leader, it's good to turn around every now and then make sure you're just not out for a walk. You know what I mean? Uh, if people aren't following you, you're, you're not a leader. Uh, the problem is, you know, people, people do follow the leader. Um, and that's good when it's a good leader. It's bad when it's a bad leader. Okay, in biblical history, pretty clear that uh, you know, it, it, you know, people, you know, Israel's pretty strong when their leadership's strong and faithful. What happens when Israel's leadership goes downhill spiritually? 
The whole, whole people go there. And, so, and through biblical history, God's always blamed the leadership and expected them to take responsibility when the people fell short. And, you know, we're, we're, we don't have time to go through these in huge detail here, uh, but we've got these in these notes. You know, Joshua was a strong leader, right? And at the end of the conquest, he challenged the people to choose who they were going to serve. And what, what, what was the response to that? Now, jo- Joshua said, as for me and my family, we'll serve the Lord, but you all need to, you know, he didn't speak up for everybody. Right? He, he let everybody make up their own mind. But what they all say that day? He, they said, we will follow. Right? They committed to that. Right? And, and that's the response in Joshua 24, 16 through 25. And that's in your notes there. You can turn and read that another time. But, you know, we get to this point. And I know we've all read this before. In Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, it says, all, all that generation... We're talking about Joshua and those people that said, oh yeah, we're going to serve the Lord. All that generation were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which he'd done for Israel. Now you think about that. What? <laughs> they really dropped the ball. Here's the strong leadership says we're going to follow the Lord and then a generation goes by and we've got a bunch of people that don't, I mean, they're ignorant about what the Lord's done. They don't know the Lord. There's no relationship with God there. And they don't know what He's done for them. That's pretty bad. Now, whose fault is that? It's parents. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's you know, um, I, I do a Bible study on Monday mornings at the Senior Citizens Home there in Warsaw, uh, Kentucky. And uh, it's always fun because they usually spend the first half of that talking about how horrible our generation is. And, you know, and I'm like, I'm in that generation. You know, I get it, you know. But the other thing, like, you know, when you're, the older generation and you're complaining about the younger generation, it's kind of like complaining about the food in the restaurant where you're the chef. You, you know what I mean? Like, who raised them? The older generation raised up the young. So, like, you know, and there's places, you know, in, in the New Testament where we're, we kind of got one of those sin lists. And, you know, there's one in, in Romans. There's one in, uh, in, in Timothy there in chapter 3 and where he talks about all these horrible things and immorality and adultery and, and idolatry and, and murder and all this. But, the, the, but he brings up in children who are disobedient to their parents. You think he's writing that to their children? Whose fault is it if your children are disobedient to the parents? It's the parents' fault, right? That's raise up a child in the way they ought to go. You know, so, so anyway, you know, there raises up this generation that didn't know the Lord. Well, that's, that's the previous generation's, you know, it's, it's where they've kind of fell short here. And we need to pay attention to that because we are supposed to be raising up faithful men who can preach and teach sound doctrine in the church. That is the responsibility of the church. Not, not our Bible colleges, not the church down there. I mean, that's, that's every church needs to be that ought to be a part of our mission. Every congregation, we need to pay attention to that. Um, you know, and, and I've seen this. We'll talk about this here in a minute after the break too. But, you know, you ever been in a congregation or maybe you've been a preacher in a congregation where, you know, you're there for a couple years. You've seen a guy for a couple years trying to straighten out some mess and then he leaves and then all the mess comes back. Have you seen that? You know, I mean, I, so I, you know, I'm, I've been at Glencoe for 15 years and in that time, you know, I'm sitting here thinking there, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of mess when I got there. I mean, there was, and I just told someone the other day, I was like, for the first five, five years I was there, I didn't want to bring in a revival speaker. I was embarrassed of what they'd find when they got in the door. You know, I'm seriously, I mean, there was, you know, things they were supporting, things people would say, and I'm like, I got to teach this stuff out of this crowd, you know, and, and so anyway, but, but, you know, I've been there 15 years, and, uh, you know, we, we've, I think we've got a good place over there, good congregation, strong, strong in doctrine, but took a lot of work to clean up a lot of mess, and, uh, 
you know, for years I sat there wondering, man, how much of this is real change? You know, if I left today, how much of this would come back, would, of what I've been trying to get out of here, would they just bring right back tomorrow, you know? And it, it, it kind of hit me there that, you know, if I don't instill the same conviction in the people that I'm teaching, then, you know, when I leave, you know, if it's just, well, that was just his way of doing things, you know what I mean? So we'll just go back to what we, you know. Uh, so, so the point is, you know, you've got to, You've got to, 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 to encourage other people to be invested in the same uh, doctrinal convictions that you're teaching on. And if you can't do that, I, I, don't know, I don't know what kind of shelf life you have on what you're working on. You see what I mean? Uh, and so anyway, you know, but I've seen it. I've seen where a preacher can be a strong preacher, but when he leaves, it's just, it's just like he wasn't even there and everything kind of falls backward. And, um, and so, you know, same thing here. There was strong leadership. What happened when they left? Well, everything kind of went backward. And so people tend to take the path of least resistance and without faith and conviction and knowledge to take a stand on the Word of God, people will do what's easy over what's right. And, you know, for me, you know, as a preacher, but also as as part of, you know, our Bible college there trying to train up men, you know, we've never really looked at people and tried to find people who were talented or resourceful or, you know, what all I ever really desire to find when I look at a congregation or visit a congregation or talk to someone is just someone who actually believes it. And, and I'm telling you, it's rare. It's rare to find people that actually believe it and will stand on it and not bend and not compromise just because it's popular or just because other people want to go that way. And so... Um, Matthew fifteen fourteen says, Let them alone, they're blind guides of the blind. If a blind man, uh, man guides a blind man, they'll both fall into a pit. Um, the priests despise the name of the Lord. They show no honor or respect. Let me ask you, you think the people are doing any better? I mean, if you're part of a church where the leadership despises the name of the Lord, do you think there's a lot of respect among the people? It ain't going to happen, Right? And so, you know, and, and I've, you know, you, I've seen this in congregation where a preacher justifies sin. How long till sins run rampant in the congregation? Happens, right? So it's, it's the leadership's job to hold the line, right? To set the example and say, this is where God's at. This is where God's standard is at. Let's, let's, let's hold on to that. Like, let's, let's encourage everyone to rise to that. And, and let's not compromise just because it's easy. Um. Let's stop there. I had this, uh, I, you know, well, well, we'll read this real quick. Then we'll take a break. Ezekiel chapter 9. I just, you know, <laughs> vision of judgment here, verses 4 through 6. Lord says, we'll go through the midst of the city and even through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike and don't let your eye have pity and don't spare Verse 6, utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. Do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Okay, this is a vision of judgment. It's a pretty, pretty intense little vision of judgment. But he says, go through the city, and if people are groaning and sighing over the horrible things that are going on, you, they're protected. Now, you think about that. Does it bother you? Does false doctrine bother you? Does compromise bother you? 
You know, when you see those little sinner's prayer pamphlets going around, does it bother you? When you see people going up for an altar call, does it bother you? When you see people compromising biblical leadership in the church, does it bother you? You know, does it bother you, the abortion and the same-sex marriage that's going on in our country? You know, if it doesn't, we're in trouble. So he says, put a mark on their head if they sigh and groan about all the abominations. Now, they're fine. They're protected. But then, you know, where's judgment start? with the leadership in the temple. Start in my sanctuary and start with the elders before the temple. So judgment starts there, okay? So, you know, we've said this before, you can't lead people to a place that you're not at yourself, right? And if the leaders despise the Lord, well, you know, you can't lead a people to be respectful and honorable of God if you're not respectful and honorable of God yourself, right? And so, you know, that's a good place to start. All right, let's take a break. We'll jump into verse 7 here in a couple minutes. Okay, so it says here, you are presenting uh, defiled food upon my altar. You say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. So, God tells them, well, you despise my name. They respond, how have we despised you? We don't see it. How have we despised your name? Now God says, well, you defiled my name by you know, uh, presenting defiled food on my altar. And then their response is, well, how have we defiled you? I want you to see there, there, there again, there's a disconnect between what they're... De- they don't seem to be arguing that they're putting defiled food on the table. They, they don't seem to see how that shows disrespect to God. And so they're, again, they're disconnecting their covenant with God, their relationship with God, uh, you know, with their actions, okay? And so that's, that's important to see here. Now, let's, uh, let's kind of go back to a real quick refresher course here. Uh, it's, you know, it's this, you know, we went through that tabernacle class. The responsibilities, the duties of the priesthood, keep in mind, you know, when you look at that tabernacle pattern, the priests are the ones who are in the presence of God. Their, their job is to facilitate the sacrifices and the offerings from the people. Um, you know, they, uh, they, uh, they've been, been sanctified and set apart for that purpose. And so, you know, um, and again, you know, th- this is important too. Uh, a big part of that was the sacrifices. But, you know, the, the law comes down, Exodus chapter 20, explaining all that. And until Jesus makes atonement, on the true mercy seat in heaven, in the heavenly tabernacle, sacrifices could only be offered at the temple. Okay, that's really important we understand that. If you had a sacrifice, you could not offer it at home. You didn't get to just go sit up in your backyard and build an altar and have a burnt offering to God. That You weren't allowed to do that. It only went through the temple and it had to be facilitated by a priest. You know, and you can go back into the last couple chapters there of Judges and you can kind of see some issues there where, well, we'll just kind of get our own priest and we'll kind of get our own altar and then we can, we can do this without the temple. God, not okay with that. Okay, um, that, you know, you're basically creating a denomination of the covenant. You know, you're, you're setting up your own version of it with your own leadership and the only way to do it. Calling it the same thing doesn't work. But anyway, you can dive into that on your own there. Uh, but between Exodus 20 and the time Jesus makes atonement, every sacrifice went through the hands of the priests. There, there's a reason that's important, but uh, it's also 
again, I, you know, if you think back prior to Exodus 20, it can be a little confusing because we can read where like Cain uh, and Abel went to present offerings. You know, Noah built an altar, had some offering. You know, Abraham, you know, those guys are doing their own sacrifices and their own offerings, but there's no law yet telling them to do it any other way, right? So once the law comes into play, right, every sacrifice takes place at the temple at the altar there. It goes through the hands of the priests, Okay? And so that doesn't change. You know, now today, obviously, our, our sacrifices, uh, you know, we're a body's a temple. We're a priest before God. Every one of us, we're in His presence. We present ourselves as a living sacrifice. You know, we went through all that lesson there. So um, anyway, let's go back to the question. How have we defiled you, says the priests? Now, the question that we need to determine, and I think the question that the priests are alluding to here is they're, probably, they're saying, how is this my fault? Okay, so who's at fault? The people or the priests? Now, whose sacrifices are they? It's the people's sacrifice. You see what we're getting at here? Because again, what's the process? Every sacrifice, because this falls into that time period between Exodus 20 and, and Jesus going into the true tabernacle and presenting himself, Right? So every sacrifice has to go through the hands of the priest, but the, the sacrifices themselves aren't the priests. Right? So who's, who's bringing defiled food? Well, the people are. Okay? Do you guys see in that? So the people are, you know, it's like this. If, 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 if uh, you know, if the church isn't tithing, you going to blame the people or the preacher? Most churches blame the preacher. <laughs> okay. Maybe we shouldn't go there, Jake. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're getting at here. Hey, not my fault. It's these people, you know. Um, but, uh, well, it's kind of like, well, then that's what Saul did, right? What's the bleeding of the shoe? Well, that's not, you know, it's these people, you know. It's what they did. But, but this is the same idea, right? We're avoiding responsibility. We're trying to pass the blame. God says, you're defiling my name by presenting defiled food on my altar. And they're saying, how have we done this? Right? We don't bring the animals. Right? We didn't march those animals up to the... You know, I mean, so it's the people that are bringing them, and so who's at fault? But, you know, again, the process is people bring their sacrifices to the temple. The priests present those sacrifices to God. So who's at fault? Let's get a raise of hand. Who thinks it's the people's fault? Sure. Who thinks it's the priest's fault? Yeah. Who... Who thinks the priests ought to take responsibility? Okay, <laughs> yeah. I think there's enough blame to go around. Everybody's at fault here. Um, but, you know, how does defiled food get to the table of the Lord? Right? Yeah, so here's the deal. If I was a priest and you brought me defiled offerings, all I got to do is say, uh-uh, get out of here. And it doesn't go to the table of the Lord. See? So that's how you stop it. By just, by stopping it. By, by not accepting what's unacceptable. But because the pre... Now, how many... Now, here's what happens, okay? You've got... Um, well, let's say... Uh, let's say Jake's up here and, you know, we're bringing all our offerings in and... You know, Jake's got some family in here. One or two. That gets hard, brother. Let's say one of them brings in a goat that's half blind. You know... Nobody else knows, though. You know what I mean? Like, it's half blind. And so, like, you know, I mean, it could cause problems, right? If for you to, I mean, you can't shut your own family out and say, right? So we let it slip a little bit. We say, okay, just this once. 
And then what happens next week? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you, Jake, come on. You let, you let them do it last week, man. You know, you really going to send us home? We got to get back in the back of the line? You know, okay, all right, all right, just this once. And then next thing you know, you got, you know, not even like, they're not even, they're bringing like coyotes in or something. And you're <laughs> passing it off like a dog. Yeah, blind ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you, you see what happens though. It's like, the, here, here's the rule, okay? The minute you compromise, right? That's a door that doesn't close. You, you won't close that door again. Okay, as a preacher, once you've compromised, I mean, how do, you, how do you come back to that and say, well, we're not going to do it. I know we've done it before, but we're... Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, but, I, you know, I once knew a guy that was preaching, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he'd been preaching for a few years, and, uh, you know, he decided he had to leave. He'd been there for a while. There was a lot of things that he let slip that, that should have been taken care of. There's things he should have done differently. Leadership should have been taken care of differently. Dealing with sin differently. You know, there's a lot of things that he realized he'd grown. You know, he, he's, he, you know, and he got to this point where he's like, you know what, I, I don't know how to undo what I've done, but I, I think I need to just go somewhere else, you know, and, and start over because I've let things, I've compromised too much here, you know. And so he tells them, look, I, I got to go. Uh, you guys need to find somebody else. I'll stick around till you find somebody else. Well, they didn't really want anybody else, so they weren't looking real hard. And a few months go down the road, and so he came in and uh, throws his resume down at the table. And the you know the, the leaders in the congregation looked at that and said, "What? You, you don't need to apply for the job. It's yours. We don't want somebody else." He's like, "No, you need to take this resume because this resume is not for the same preacher you've had." You know, and so they sat down and he explained, you know, listen, I've, you know, if I'm going to stay, things have to be different. I can't with a good conscience, you know, I've made mistakes and I've, I, I need to repent from that, but the congregation needs to be willing to let me do things the way it's supposed to be done. It, it's a hard, I mean, it's a hard thing to do, but that's what I'm saying. Once you compromise, man, that's that, you don't shut that door again. You don't shut that door again. I've, I've had young guys come to the, I was just telling Chris, I think, you know, the, the, the young man I was talking about earlier that, that uh, was trying to find baptism in the book of Exodus, you know, he, <laughs> he becomes a Christian, you know, and he's, he's got a good job. And they, they told him, they said, listen, you have to come in and start working on Sundays. We need you on Sundays. You know, we're, we can't get enough workers and things are getting busy. And he said, I can't do that. He said, I've got a commitment. Um, he said, look, work with me here. What can we do about it? He said, I'll come in early. And, uh, you know, but I need to be, you know, in the assembly from 10 to noon on Sunday morning. So if you let me come in, I'll, I'll work, I'll leave, I'll, I'll attend the, the assembly and I'll come right back. And, you know, that's what he does. I mean, he'll, he's, he goes to work like five in the morning, comes in filthy, <laughs> you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning. I love seeing him come in like that because I know what he's, I know what he's sacrificing to be there. He wants to be there, you know, but he, he didn't do it one time. You know what I mean? He, 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 you know, not one time did he say, okay, just this once. Because what, what would happen? Just this once, I'll come in and work, but not again. They're going to come back and ask again and again and again. So the first time they asked, he, he put his foot down, just said, listen, here's where I'm at. I'll do whatever I can to work around this. I'll come in extra. I'll do more work, you know, but this is a priority. And, and everyone I know that's done that has never had a problem. Everybody's been willing to, they respect that. They're, you know, because a Christian should be the best worker in that place. You dependable, hardworking, right? Honest, got some integrity to them, not cheating on the time clock, everything else, you know? So these guys, you know, they, they want to hire people like that and they'll work with those people, but you compromise one time, they're going to expect it again and again and again. And that's, that's how compromise always works. And so, you know, one time we let Jake and his half-blind goat come up front, you know, 
And then next thing you know, we're in a, we're in a mess, right? And so, so this is what happens. So they're, they're saying, well, how, you know, how, how have we done this? Well, the people bring it, but the priests have to accept it in order for it to get to the Lord's table. Okay, I've got in your notes there Leviticus 22, 17 through 20. We're not going to read that right now. Uh, you can go through that. It just, it basically, you know, says over and over again, okay, if someone brings so-and-so, right, then, you know, uh, then let him offer it if it's this, this, and this, right? And so the priest's job is to accept what's been examined and approved, Right? And so again, what's leadership's, leadership's job isn't to come up with rules. That's why I tell people all the time, people ask about authority in the church. I, leaders, we ain't got no authority in the church. It's Jesus' church. Uh, leadership's job is to hold the line where Jesus said it. Right? Our job is to, you know, make sure what the Bible says is being, is being taken care of. Like that's, you know, that's it. We have no authority outside of the Word of God and outside of Jesus Christ. He's it. And so, you know, the leadership's job is to hold the standard. And that's, that's the same thing here, right? They have to accept it before it comes to God. And, you know, if they would have said, <laughs> they wouldn't have, 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 have accepted what's unexpected, or one accept. Jake, you want to finish for me tonight and I'll sit down and take a nap or something. If they wouldn't have accepted what's unacceptable, this wouldn't have ever happened. Whew. I should get something for that. <laughs> Blind goat, half blind. I, don't, I wouldn't take a full blind goat. All right. Here's the deal. You know, um, there is, we need to see that there's, there's often a big difference between our own expectations and the expectations of God. I know we talked about this in the tabernacle class. We'll probably talk about this a lot uh, over, over time because, it, you know, it's, it's something that the church has got to reconcile with. There's things that we can look at and say, I don't see what the big deal is. That's, that's fine. You, you, you need to admit that. Ethan doesn't see a big deal. But then you also need to look at the Bible and determine, does God make it a big deal? And if he does, doesn't matter if Ethan understands it or not. Okay? And, and see, that's where people try to reason. Right? I, I see this all the time with leadership, you know, and the qualifications that are given in the Scripture. People are always trying, you know, when, when, when people don't want to follow the biblical qualifications, it's always, well, what, you know... <laughs> This guy's such a good guy, and I, you know, I knew a good elder over here, and, and he didn't meet the qualification. You know, and it's always, you know, it's always what seems right to you in the moment, and you're trying to justify all this. And that's fine. I can admit, maybe that guy's a good guy. Maybe he'd make a good leader. Is he biblically qualified is the only question we can ask. It's the only question that matters, right? And so, sure, I, I, I don't see a problem with it. God does, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right? And so, you know, when someone came into Jake with the half blind goat, Jake should say, well, I get it, you know, if it was up to me, but it's, guess what? Not up to me. And so according to God's law, this animal was, is unacceptable. You're going to have to go home and bring something that is. That would have been the end of it. Okay? And so the thing is, people, people do what is expected. That's, that's the tendency. Okay? People tend to do what's expected and they tend to only do what's expected and nothing more. I, uh, I was, several years ago, I was, I was visiting with a congregate. Well, they, they asked me to come and preach for a couple, couple days there. And, you know, every night I'm sitting down with somebody else in the church there, you know, beforehand, afterward, whatever, and they're explaining all the problems. Can't get people to show up. Can't get people to give. You've all heard it before, Right? And I'm, I'm sitting here in the assembly 
And it became really apparent why nobody shows up and no one gives. They'll get up and they'll say something like, well, you know, we're going to pick up a collection and, you know, it's uh, how will a man rob God and, you know, we'll go through all that. And then they'll, they'll turn into crawl dads <laughs> and they start backing up. But we understand if, you know, if you can't give right now and times are hard and things got going on, you know, and so we, you know, we, if you're able, go ahead, you know. And it's like, well, is it what we're supposed to do or is it if you feel like it? You, you see what I mean? You know, they'll get up and, well, we should be faithful to the assembly. We should be here. Well, I know, I know everybody's schedules are busy and you see, it's like, it's like they, no matter what the issue was, they wouldn't stand on the line with it. They could make the statement that the Bible makes, but then they'd back up from it and leave plenty of wiggle room for everybody to get out, you see? And so people only do what's expected. And they tend to only do what's expected and nothing more. <clears throat> Step one in fixing our, our attendance problems is expect people to show up. When I was in Bible college, you know... Um, had a Sunday night and a Sunday evening sermon in a lot of places, you know. And, uh, you know, they always told me in school, hey, if you've got two sermons on a Sunday, take the best one that you've got and preach it Sunday night. Give the people a reason to come back, right? Don't, don't, don't preach a secondhand sermon on Sunday night. Preach the best thing you got for the crowd that's going to come up and be faithful on Sunday. You know, give people a reason to be there, right? If you're going to have a Bible study on Wednesday night, prepare have something worth, you know, people aren't going to show up just because they feel like they're supposed to come, but give them a reason to be there. I'm not saying that that's the only reason people should come, but you see, if you expect people to be there, that's, they might show up, but if you expect that, well, we've got 300 people on a Sunday morning and 10 on Sunday night, then you're going to forever have 300 people on Sunday morning and 10 on Sunday night, see? If, if the leaders don't show up, the people won't show up. If the leaders aren't in Bible study, the people won't have Bible study. If you think the church is going to be evangelistic and the leadership in the church has never won a single soul, don't expect a church that's going to be soul winners. See, you, you can't lead people where you're not willing to go yourself. And so, here's the thing. How easy would it be to never... Um, talk to anybody about the Lord if it was never brought up in a single sermon? Wouldn't it be easy just to ignore that? I mean, how easy would it be to not come back or not make, make showing up a big deal if it was never preached on that we should be faithful to the assembly? Now, does that change where God stands on it? How easy is it to not not believe in baptism when all you've ever heard your whole life is that baptism is just a work and we can't be saved by works. We've all dealt with people like that. Right? They hear it so much. I mean, I've heard Mark 16, you know, you know people have heard it, heard it taught wrong their whole life. They can't even read it right. Right? Whoever's, uh, whoever's saved and is baptized. Read it again. Well, yeah, yeah. Whoever's saved and is baptized. That's not what it says. They can't even read it right. They've heard it wrong their whole life. Does that change what God says? You think that changes in the church of Christ? See, and so if a congregation, you know, doesn't expect it, it doesn't change what God expects, but boy, that, you know, the responsibility then falls on the leadership, right, for not expecting it, for not holding that line. And so again, people will do what's expected. And so the priests, they don't expect people to bring an appropriate sacrifice to the altar. 
And so people will bring what's convenient, what they can get away with, what, what is it being accepted here. Okay, and I, look, I've seen people, I've known, I've known people that have moved and, you know, they've, they've thought of everything where they're moving. They've thought about where they're going to get a job. They've thought about where their kids are going to go to school. They've picked out the perfect house. They've got everything figured out, but they never did think about, well, where am I going to attend? Uh, where, where, what faithful congregation can I be a part of out here? And so they get out there and then they start asking questions. Well, where am I supposed to go now? And then they get into a place and, you know, and they'll call me up and say, well, it's... You know, and, the, and it's, it's an hour of them justifying a bunch of stuff they know is wrong. Well, the guy, you know, he calls himself a pastor, but I mean, that's not a big deal, right? I mean, I hear that one a lot, by the way. <laughs> and then a year or two down the line, man, those people are just as wishy-washy as the congregation they folded up into. You, you see, and so, you know, you, 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 you know people do what's expected. Okay, we need to expect God's standards from every Christian. And, you know, standards get dropped when we don't expect the right thing to happen. The right thing needs to be the expected thing. You know, here's the thing. When expectations get dropped, I don't know why I switched the slide. We're not there yet. <laughs> expectations get dropped when, like I said, leaders don't show up. Um, when we let people stand up front and sing, um, serve, give us communion meditation, lead us in prayer who are not faithful themselves, what are we doing? We're taking those people, putting them up front, shining the spotlight on them and saying, we've put our stamp of approval on this, on their behavior, on their, on their example, right? And so they become the example. Uh, I can tell you in our congregation, if, if you're not showing up like you're supposed to, uh, you ain't standing up front. You aren't serving communion. You're not going to lead us in prayer on Sunday. You're not going to do a communion meditation. Not going to happen, right? Now, I want you there, right? I'll pray with you. I'll help you, but I'm not going to put you up front to be an example for my kids to follow, right? For other people to look at and say, That's, this, is the, this is what we're supposed to do if you're not actually trying to do what you're supposed to do, right? The, the, I, I saw a, there was a congregation I used to attend. I wasn't a preacher there, nothing, but I remember sitting Sunday night. They had Bible study at six o'clock, and we're sitting there, and I see, you know, they had a choir director. She'd pull in at 6.30, 6.45 or so, sit out in the car until seven, come in after Bible study was over to lead the choir. Yeah, I was the only one that seemed to have a problem with it, Okay. Um, you know, I remember sitting Bible study one night on a Wednesday night in a, congreg a small congregation. There's only 15 people maybe. And about three of them showed up for Bible study. But right in the middle of the Bible study, about seven of the men in the congregation showed up. They didn't even realize we had Bible study because they never come. But they were there to fix something. I said, why don't you all take a seat till we're done. We can fix it later. You know, we have Bible study on Wednesday night. Be good if you bring your families next week. You know. And so, you know, we need to think about the example that's being set and what we put our stamp of approval on. The magazines we set out, you know, the people we bring in for meetings, the, the people that we let come up and sing, you know, anything that gets put in the spotlight, that's, that's the same thing. We are putting our approval on that. We're saying this is the example to follow. We need to pay attention to that. We saw that in the promised land, how contagious a bad attitude can be. You know what I mean? And so you've got to watch for those things in our congregations. Um, Speaking of that, let me ask you this. Okay, uh, well, okay, verse 7. He says, uh, 
You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. You say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. So what they're saying is, you know, the table of the Lord is, is, is supposed to be despised, right? You know, what we're doing is, 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 is okay. And so, you know, the leadership in the church have nothing good to say about the system that God has put in place. Do you see that? They're, they're talking bad about God's thing, about what God has set in place. Okay, and you know, this, this is something that's, you know, especially over the last maybe five, six years when we get, we get into some touchy subjects with marriage and, and with, with uh, you know, gender and homosexuality and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You, 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 I mean, the stuff gets touchy sometimes. And I've seen where, where Christians will, will, will start apologizing for where God stands on some of these things. You seen that? Well, you know, I know, I know, I know, but the Bible says, right? They ain't got anything good to say about where God's at with this. They're, they're ashamed of it. They're apologetic to people about it. Well, I don't, I don't mean that's to come off the wrong way, but technically God, God looks at what you're doing and it's not really okay, you know. Really? So, how do you suppose it affects people when the leaders talk bad and complain about the system that God set in front of them? Well, it's, it's bad for morale. You know, it, it's bad for the whole congregation. And so, and like I said, we saw that in the promised land, right? We've got 12 spies. Um, I had, uh, I don't even know where, I, some missionary I think came when I was a kid. I used to just show up for stuff like that. I never, we never actually attended. But I remember this. There were 10 were bad, <laughs> two were good. So there, you've learned something tonight. Ten, two were good. For the pro, the, uh, see, Jake's not even paying attention. Oh. Yeah, you'll have to watch later. Okay, so but okay, so ten spies were were good, right? They are bad. They come back, and what, what's their attitude? They have. Yeah, I mean, nothing good to say about what God told them to do, about what God's plan was, about what God's program is, about God's mission. Nothing good to say about it. And then two, two of them are, yeah, let's, by all means, we can do this, right? And then the whole congregation of Israel, which is not nothing, right, listened to the ten. And then decided, hey, we should probably kill these two and tried to stone them, you know? And so, like, the bad, the, bad, the bad attitude is pretty contagious, okay? It's a pretty serious thing there. And so, you know, here's, you know, how important is morale for the church? I mean, we talked a lot last week about attitude, right? We talked about potential, and, uh, you know, that uh, we talked about the attitude between Israel and, uh, and, and the Edomites, Right and you know um, you know and how how the how the Edomites had an attitude for success, but God made sure they wouldn't. And here Israel, their attitudes were in the gutter, but God still propping them up and pulling them along. You know, and and so how important is our attitudes? How important is morale? Yeah, you know I, I you know I, Jake and I've talked a bit about this too. You know, it's it's funny sometimes with preachers. You know, you you get you get two opposite opposing you know formats you I, I once saw a guy you know come up to a meeting and uh, he had a he had a binder which I have a binder and uh, <laughs> he uh, is preaching out of one of the churches I think on Revelation he opens it up and he sits down on a chair and he just starts reading and he never looked up and an hour and 15 minutes later he closed his binder and sat down 
And then I woke up. <laughs> and the thing is, like, he could have had the best information in the world on that, on that chapter. I, I couldn't follow it, right? Because I couldn't pay any attention to it, okay? On the other hand, like, there's preachers that, that you know, I've seen that are just so charismatic, you know, and, and like, when they get done preaching, like, man, that was exciting. And man, that really, you know, got me fired up. And then, you know, it's like, well, well what was the sermon about? Well, I don't know, but I'm excited about it, you know? And it's like, there wasn't any substance, but boy, that could they present it, you know? And it's like, if you could get the two to come together, right? If you could have some substance and present it, that's helpful, you know? And so we always tell our guys, look, you know, uh, however you preach, you need to be excited about what you're, if you're not excited about the Lord, again, the congregation won't be excited about the Lord. And so you need to preach like you believe it. And if you don't believe it, stop preaching. Get someone else to do it, you know? But, um, but anyway, morale's a big deal, guys. You know, it, it goes a long way with with uh, with with people's convictions and and their attitude and there's enough things going on in this world to discourage us and dishearten us uh, we come together should be a time to get excited about things right get excited about the Lord and there it is Jake's got it and so here how important is morale how about this it's important enough that God commanded us to have an assembly right what's the purpose of us assembling yeah, yeah, morale, right? I mean, that's that's what it's about, and so yeah, it's it's uh, it's uh, so you know we need to be careful how things we say affect the people around us. The priests had an opportunity to just say no. God won't accept that and you can't offer that, but instead they just complained about God's system and then accepted whatever. And so now here's the thing: technically, these priests are doing their job. You brought me garbage. I'll put that garbage up on the Lord's table and offer it. You know, it's not my. I know a preacher that's got that exact attitude. He, you know, he says, "Well, the people are doing whatever they want. Not my problem." But I, I get up and preach every week. You know, and it's like, you you don't get to be separate from the congregation. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're that's that's they're your brothers and sisters. You know, you have to take some responsibility there. And so these priests are technically doing their job, but they're complaining about it. And let me tell you something: God cares as much about what we do. Uh, as he does why we do it, how we do it, and the attitude we carry when we do it. Okay? And so those things all matter. Well, I give, but I'll whine about it and wish I had it for myself. Better not, you know, be just as good not giving it. Now, well, I show up, but let's just get this thing over with. I got places to be, you know? I don't know if that's the right attitude either. Okay? <clears throat> so uh, I know with my kids, I'm all the time, um, I'm very concerned about their attitude when they're doing what I told them what to do, you know. And uh, it was, uh, they're, they're downstairs, they're not up here, so I love picking on them. Um, I had the, my littlest one, he just, he gets a little dramatic sometimes. And uh, I had him go out, uh, I needed him to pick up the dog poop in the yard. So there's this, you know, real back-breaking labor, you know. And so he's out there just, he's barely able to pick this thing up, you know, and he's just dragging his feet and it's taking him, you know, 20 years to do it. And so I, I'm like, come here, you know, we sat down. I'm like, what are you doing, bud? He's like, oh, I just don't want to. I'm like, can you do a better job than that? I mean, are you proud of the person you're being right now? And I said, why don't you collect poop out of the yard? Like, it, like you were put here on earth to do it. You know, and you know, I re, you know, but but here's the thing. Like after we had this pep talk, man, he get out, he got it done in no time. Did a good job. You know, he was happy. Uh, you know, he got done. He's proud of the work he did. Right. So you know, you can't tell me your attitude doesn't matter. 
right? You're at, you know, have you ever, it's, it's like this too. You know, if you guys are married, uh, your wives cook you a meal. Uh, there is a, di- you know, we always say, well, the secret ingredient was love. There's something to that. You know, have a meal prepared to you by a woman that hates your guts, okay? And, 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 is, and doesn't want to be cooking you a meal. Like, let's just get this over with so we can shove it down your gullet and go on about the day. That meal doesn't taste as good as the one that she's proud to say. I say, my wife's never done that to me, <laughs> but... Um, but you see what I'm saying? So attitude goes a long way. You think the Lord cares about how we do it, not just what we do? Yeah. The attitude we have when we're here, that goes a long way with what we're producing, okay? And so attitude matters. Anyway, um, let's go on to here. Verse 8. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Okay, so what I want us to see here first is that sin manifests itself first in attitude, then in action, right? So sin manifests itself first in attitude, then in action. It is because the Lord has not been honored and respected that the people are now offering lame, sick, and blind. Do you see that connection? If the people honored and respected the Lord, this would never have been offered. Okay? So again, goes back to attitude, goes back to their love for the Lord, those sorts of things. Um, and we're not going to read through this right now. Uh, Leviticus 22, 21 through 25. Uh, we're running out of time, that's why. The, you know, we went through this in the tabernacle class. What's acceptable and what's not? Okay? What did God want for his sacrifices? The best, okay? So God wanted the, 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 the blue ribbon, uh, first place prize bull, right? That's what he wanted, right? And so he doesn't want the lame and he doesn't want the sick. He doesn't want the blind and, and you know, uh, and the, the fractured, the maimed, the ones that are sore and sick. You know, he doesn't want any of those things, okay? And so here's the thing. In, in chapter 1, verse 8, what are they presenting? S- specifically what God said not to bring. Right? It's not just that it doesn't quite hit the mark. It is exactly the thing God said I don't want. Right? And so again, you can't really blame this on ignorance. You can't really say, well, at least their heart's in the right place. Or of course, we only say that when people are doing the wrong thing. Um, you know, we never say that when people do the right thing. Um, but yeah, they, they, are, uh, they are bringing what is um, blind, what's sick. And if you go into Malachi 1.13, you're going to read, they're even bringing what's stolen. Okay? So, you know, how's that for, I'm going to bring an offering to God. I just got to steal it from my neighbor first, you know. But that's what they're doing, okay? And so they're taking God's command, which is to give the first and the best, which is what he wants, what fits that criteria, and instead they're offering what's lame and what's sick and what's blind and what's stolen. And then their attitude is, um, well, God, you ought to be happy with it. Why aren't you blessing me? You know, aren't you pleased with me? I mean, here's the group that's been told, I want your best, I want it first, I want it bring, brought from your own flock, this needs to be personal, don't bring the lame, don't bring the blind, don't bring the sick, and they're bringing the blind because, well, it's useless anyway to them, they're rushing to the front of the line because they got this goat that's about to die, and we gotta, we gotta get it sacrificed before it kills over, you know, they're hiding it under their jacket because they just stole it from their neighbor and they don't want anybody to see and they're bringing it up here and offering it to the priests. And God's supposed to say, oh my goodness, I couldn't be happier with this group of people. 
Now what we need to ask is, are we capable of doing the same thing? Yeah. We want God to be pleased with us. We want the blessings. But we also want God to take what we don't want, what we don't need, what, wouldn't, what we don't want reproducing among our flocks. And we want God to take that and just be happy with it. You know, of course, you know, God's response, you know, is going to be, uh, I, I, I wish someone would just shut the doors to the temple. I wish we'd just shut this thing down. And, and again, we talked about this in the tabernacle class, but the principles from God seems to be, um, you know, if I can't get what I want, I don't want anything at all. And, you know, I know when we think that may be a selfish attitude for us, but when you're talking about a holy and a righteous God, God deserves to have what He wants. And there's no, nothing, no place in the Bible that says, where God says, this is what I want, but just, you know, if you can't get around to that, I'll, I'll accept something less than that. We need to ask, you know, could I be capable of sitting here tonight knowing exactly what God wants from my life? God being plain and specific in what He wants from us. And could I be the one sitting here saying, well, I'm not going to give you what you want, but God, you better be happy with what I am giving you and I expect to be blessed because of it. They're giving God leftovers. And I remember I used to work at this machine knife company in Florence and I was in the warehouse. I unloaded their trucks for them and stuff. And, uh, you know, there was this communal fridge. You all ever have those in your workplaces? Communal fridge? Yeah, so there's this communal fridge in the warehouse. And so all the, all the sales guys and stuff, you know, they'd go out to eat and then they'd, you know, they'd eat whatever they wanted to eat and then they'd get the styrofoam box and whatever they couldn't eat or didn't want, they'd box up and then they'd shove it in the fridge, which I never understood why because they never ate it. And then, you know, when it needs a shave and a haircut, I have to go in and clean out the fridge. And so, uh, you know, do you think it's possible for us to have that same approach with life where we're going to go out and we're going to eat everything we want to eat and eat till we're full and, and then whatever's left over, whatever we don't want, box that up and God, you can have it if you want. I have no use for it. But you better bless me for it and you better be happy that I offered it to you. <clears throat> yeah, our, our standard is to give him the best of ourselves. Right? And <clears throat> I think I've mentioned this before. You know, I, I think I've been somebody's preacher for going on like 18 years here. And in 18 years, the most uh, common question I get is, do I have to? And <clears throat> do I have to, uh, you know, do I have to give? Uh, do I have to show up? Do I have to repent? You know, do I have to be involved? Do I have, you know, all those sorts of things. Let me just say this. In 18 years, no one has ever came up to me and asked me how they can do more. No one said, you know, hey, can you help me figure out how to give more? More myself, more my time, more my money, more my resources. Can you, can you help me find a way to be useful here? Can you help me find a way to, 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 to give more of myself to the Lord? And, you know, anytime our attitude is how do I do less for the Lord, we, we've got a problem. But that's usually what it is. We, we, we look at this and we, we say, okay, how do I give the least and still get the most out of it? Now that works with some things, right? 
You know, I mean, convenience helps us. You know, if you're a farmer, you know, you're going to look at the look at your crop and everything that goes into that. And what what do you do? How do I how do I how do I put the least into that and get the most out of the harvest? Like that makes sense. You want that, but when it comes to the Lord, that's a different thing, right? We're not talking about trying to make a profit. We're not, you know, it's not an exchange of goods. This is, this is about the one who saved us from our sin problem, right? Who gave his only begotten son to die and take our blame and take our sin so that we could live eternally with him. And our attitude should never be, man, how can I offer him less and still get the most from him? If God is who he says he is, if God is who we act like He is, He deserves absolutely the most. And there's, there's a good chance, you know, that, that you know, we're here tonight because we all agree, we have this idea that we are in desperate need of Jesus in our life. And, you know, we need Jesus for, for our life. We need Jesus for our eternity. We, we need Jesus because of our sin. And, you know, we understand that without Him we are doomed. And our attitude should be, more than just, well, if I have something extra, if I have time in my schedule that hasn't been slotted somewhere else, if I've got a little bit of money that I, I can't find anything else to spend on, you know, that, uh, well, you know, God, you're, you're okay. You can have that if you want. And, and, you know, people tell me in the church all the time, well, I would, but I've got other commitments. You understand that there is no bigger commitment, right? Than living your life for Jesus Christ. That trumps all other commitments. You guys ever do uh, treading on, on thin ice here, I think. Let's talk about church donations for a minute. You guys ever have people donate stuff? I won't talk about you all. I'll just talk about my experiences real quick. Right now, I think we're sitting on two broken microwaves downstairs, a dishwasher that's not connected. Uh, some chairs that have not been put together but are filling up one of the classrooms. There's uh, a bunch of uh, dining plates that I don't know what in the world we're going to do with and silverware that won't fit in the cabinets. Um, I was, we, uh, one time we got uh, offered the moldy carpet from a, uh, from a, a, a flooded basement so they weren't going to use it anymore because you know, they were getting new carpet but if we wanted the old, yeah, they dropped it off for us. Um, you know, it used to be when I, when I got down to, you know, I, I remember some, you know, used to drop off old computers that didn't work anymore. So if the church could use these, a uh, bunch of denominational books, you know, that will send people to hell that I've got to burn or throw away, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. A lot of that stuff gets offered. Um, you know, I remember uh, when, when Hurricane Katrina went, me and two other, uh, other preachers, we, we, uh, we got tired of the church, church of Christ complaining that no one in the church of Christ was doing anything. You know, we were kind of harkening everybody for sending supplies with denominational groups. And they're like, well, who else can we send it to? And then we're like, well, you got us there. So we decided to, to bring supplies down, right? And so we got a church van. We, we took all the seats out of it. And we told everybody we wanted uh, two things, water and baby formula and diapers. I think diapers, three things. And that's it. That's all we were taking down. That's all they said they needed. Uh, so once people heard we were taking up donations for Hurricane Katrina victims, you had any idea what kind of stuff we got? Furniture, uh, moldy carpet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we got everything, uh, everything you could imagine, all the stuff that people were just going to throw away anyway. Okay, and they're like, well, maybe they could use this down there, you know. Well, you know what we had to do with all the stuff that wasn't water and, and baby food and, uh, and diapers? We threw it away as garbage. We threw it away because it's not what we needed. It's not what we asked for. It's not what they needed. It's not what they asked for. So here's the thing. Um, 
God asked for what he asked for, what do you think he's going to do when we give him something else? Okay, it's not what he asked for, guys. Now, it happens, though, because we at some point decide to accept what's unacceptable. You know, we, we sit through Bible studies, you know, we, we hear very clearly what God expects, and yet those things are not always really what's expected from the church. And, you know, it's like, you know, well, here's what God accepts, but the church, we, we settle for a little less, right? And it's never okay for the church's standards to be different from God's. We cannot accept less from ourselves, and we cannot make it acceptable for others. And so when God puts a standard out there, you know, we can't change that and we need to expect that from each other. And so, you know, uh, the, the least I can do needs to be a phrase that we quit saying, okay? There's no point that we sit back and say, well, let's, what's the least we can give God? I know what people mean when they say that. Well, it's the least I could do. But really, the mentality should be, what's the most I can do for God? What's the most I can offer to Him? What's the, what's the most I can do in this situation? And, you know, like in Malachi's day, what we see happening is that the church does this too. It's like we lower everything to just the lowest common denominator, right? And so, what were they doing? Well, they're showing up and they're bringing a sacrifice, so everything's good. Technically, yeah, they are showing up and they're bringing the sacrifice, but they're offering garbage. They're not actually giving what God wants. And in the church, we do the same thing. We think if people show up once a week, boy, we've really got it going. Matter of fact, all that constitutes success in, in the church today is getting a lot of people to show up for an hour on Sunday. It doesn't matter if there's change. It doesn't matter if there's conversion. It doesn't matter if anyone's really being evangelistic, if anyone's following Jesus. If we can get a bunch of people to sit in a building for an hour on Sunday morning, man, you're successful. And then if you're the preacher that can do that, we'll send you out to speak everywhere and you'll go around and you'll tell everybody how you did it and, you know, and you'll be the big success story and you can teach other, other places to do that. Just get a bunch of people to come together and sit down in the building on Sunday morning. It's the common, lowest common denominator of what's expected. Okay? Here's the thing. The least I can do is only enough to help us sleep at night and it's not enough to bring the Lord honor. It makes you feel better. It doesn't do anything for God. Then you think about that. If your Christianity is just about you feeling good, it's not about what actually is helpful and useful to the Lord and to His kingdom, okay, you, need to, you need to rethink your, your, uh, your motive here. God calls it evil when they offered something different than what He expected. Okay? And now, now I'll end with this because uh, we're out of time. It is not about how much we do or don't do, okay? It's never been about that. I don't, I don't want you to twist this, okay? We're not, not trying to get into a legalistic point here where it's, you know, the person that does the most wins. That, that's not the idea. It's always been about the attitude. And we see that even here. We saw that when we went through the introduction of Malachi. There's so many times where God looks at, the, at, at his people in the Old Testament and saying, okay, you're doing what I told you to do, but because your attitude's not right, because your heart's not in it, because it's not about me, I want you to stop doing it, right? And so God has a problem with it. And so it's always been about that attitude and how that attitude gets, gets manifested into action. And it's the same thing in Malachi's day. Honoring God's not important. That's their attitude. And so they offer what's unacceptable. It affects their actions. All right, I think that's a good place to stop. We'll hit the governor idea next week. Um, you know, why not offer it to your governor and then we'll move on to the, hopefully the rest of chapter, chapter one next week.